Welcome to the Oakcrest Podcast Channel. Oakcrest School in Vienna, Virginia challenges girls in grades 6 to 12 to develop their intellect, character, faith, and leadership potential to thrive in college and throughout their lives. On today's podcast, Mary Rice Hassan talks about the rapid increase in the promotion of gender ideology in movies, social media, and even in the medical community. With a compassionate and realistic approach, she shares the understanding of the truth about the human person and urges us to take up our responsibility as parents to study the issue so as to provide guidance to our children. So I want to start um, first by saying a couple of things. I, you know, I have all these policy credentials, but I really approach this issue with a mother's heart because when I first started working on this, I got a grant six or seven years ago to look deeply at gender ideology and how it was affecting um, cultures across the globe. And I came out of that research just uh, truly alarmed, but also tremendously motivated to help the church equip families to help schools be able to engage this issue because the effects of it are so devastating. And when I first started speaking about this around the country, people would come up to me afterwards and they would say something like, you know, my hairdresser's son's uh, nephew is struggling with identity. Now, every time I go to speak somewhere, People come up to me afterwards or contact me afterwards and say, it's my daughter, it's my son, it's my goddaughter, my grandchild. This is affecting all of us. And in fact, gender ideology affects every one of us in this room because it's shaping how we think, it's shaping our language, it's shaping our institutions. So it's something that we have to grapple with. We cannot avoid the impact. So let me begin uh, with a couple of preliminaries. Tech is not my strong suit. Uh, just to give you an overview, a sense of where we're going, I'm going to um, just give a, a couple of preliminary remarks just for perspective. And then I'm going to present two different competing versions of the person. The Christian vision of the person and gender ideology, because that's really what's at stake. We have a clash of anthropologies, and I'll go into that. And then I'm going to talk specifically about some of the myths and messages that are presented, sold, really, to our kids, in particular to young women, and speak about the vulnerabilities that all of our young women have, but some women have in particular. And then I'm going to talk about some things that we can do as parents, some things to be aware of, some things to, to know, some things to communicate. So that's kind of a, a roadmap of where we're going. So to begin, when people talk about LGBT issues, and in particular lately, the transgender issue, there's a lot of happy talk, right? You see rainbows, you see coming out stories, you see a steady routine or stay uh, drumbeat in the media about people discovering their authentic selves. And the media narrative is that if we can only accept and affirm people according to their, their discovered identity, they can live happily ever after. And that's the media narrative, whether you're talking about young children, adolescents, or adults. But the story's a lot more complicated than that. And so I'd like to begin by just reminding us, this is a really painful topic. And it's painful 
for the person who's going through it, who's struggling with identity. It's painful for the families, for the siblings, even, even when those families may have chosen the affirmative path that decided to support a young person traveling down this transgender road. There's still pain and suffering. In fact, there's a growing body of literature talking about the grief and loss experienced by families who choose to affirm their children. Particularly, mothers experience that um, tremendous gift of giving birth to a child. This is my son. And then having them as an adolescent say, you know, I'm really your daughter. And wanting an erasure of family history. And of course, now there are corporations that take advantage of that, that will uh, doctor your family photos to change the family history, to show a daughter who is now identifying as a son as if she were always a boy, because that's the narrative. So there's pain even among those families that choose to go down that road. But there's a particular kind of devastation that families experience when they hold fast to the truth and they have a child who perhaps is really caught up in this. And they may have neighbors or they may have extended family. They may have professionals who are all telling them they're doing the wrong thing in affirming the truth about that person, about who their, their child is. And that's a particular kind of pain. And I, I just, I, I cannot, it's the kind of thing that keeps me up at night, you know, praying and thinking about families who are struggling with that. I've also discovered in the course of working on this that it's really helpful to presume the best of those that we engage with on this issue. Because even with work, working with people who are, shall we say, on the other side of this, in other words, they support this affirmative view of allowing someone to uh, self-define an identity. And we differ radically on both the anthropology, but also the science and the, the medical harm that results. And yet I've found that we can still connect in some way by our, our common desire to help people who are suffering, to help people find healing and wholeness. But our paths are very different. But I think that's an important thing to say here because we don't want to demonize people who have embraced a particular path, particularly regarding their own child. What they need is love and they need the truth. They need support as they travel that road, hopefully to come back to that, um, the truth about who their child is. It affects, this issue also affects siblings. And I, I've seen tremendous ruptures of families as siblings are don't know how to deal with this, and grandparents, and, and so there's a lot of division around this issue. So it's tremendously difficult for the person involved, the families, for those who love them. So let's presume the best and, and just keep that in mind. So how should we approach this issue? I'd like to begin with Pope Francis, who from the beginning of his papacy has presented two sort of parallel um, examples of how to address this issue. One, in dealing with individuals who are struggling, he has treated them as persons, affirming their dignity, providing material support. Some of you may remember what's imaged here in this, this uh, picture. Early on in his papacy, 
he received a letter from a woman who lived in Spain who had written to him saying that she had, quote, transitioned, she was living her life as a man, she was a Catholic, and she was being, as she described it, persecuted and abused by people in her home parish, including by her priest. And the Pope invited her to come and speak with him. He didn't share with the world the contents of that conversation. Wouldn't have been appropriate. But what he did say afterwards was to remind us that for every, every person, every heart that's suffering, we need to accompany them and never abandon them. And so that's the first thing we need to hold in our minds and in our hearts as we approach this issue. But the same Pope has also been very specific and unafraid to call out the evil of the ideology behind this. So even as he's compassionate and loving to the human being who's suffering in front of him, he has spoken very strongly about gender ideology, what it is, the impact on individuals, on families, on cultures that break down of the family. And he sees very clearly the damage that this ideology does. And he uses wickets we're not, or words we're not used to hearing from him speaking about the culture. He calls gender theory wicked. So he's pulling no punches. So as Catholics, we need to hold both those things in our minds and in our hearts and try to understand why is it that this ideology is described as wicked and so damaging to the family and to the person. And yet, to keep in our hearts and in our minds that desire to help and to love and to accompany those who are suffering. So one of the basic tasks of every human being is to figure out who they are. You know, when I, I remember being a teenager and uh, sorting through that question, but I didn't have to ask, am I female or male? I knew that answer. Trying to figure out who I was meant trying to understand my personality, how it was alike or different from my siblings, I'm one of ten, how I wanted to be when I grew up, what my parents expected, what my values were going to be. That was the search in terms of identity. Today it's very different. But make no mistake, every person has to confront that question of who am I? Because only if you know the answer to that question can you answer the resulting questions. How should I live? What's the purpose of my life? How do I make sense of suffering? We cannot answer those questions unless we know clearly who we are. So who are we? Well, Christian Christianity tells us. Christian anthropology has an answer that we've, uh, that's been shared over centuries. And in fact, the truths here are built into the human person to know these. These are natural law concepts as well. But we know from, from a Catholic Christian standpoint, Genesis tells us male and female, he created us. It tells us two things. We have a creator. We didn't just arrive. We have a creator. There has never been a moment of our existence when we have not been in relationship with a God who loves us. Take that home and meditate on that. That changes our lives. Because that tells us fundamentally who we are. I'm a daughter of the Lord. You're a son or daughter of the Lord. That's the foundation of who we are, acknowledging we have God as our creator. 
and that he created us out of love, for love, for a purpose, and to live all eternity with him. That's an amazing thing. What else do we know? We know that, that God designed us a certain way as our creator. We have a human nature. He built in certain truths to our body, to our desires. We're primed to seek good and avoid evil. Even those who do evil do it because they think there's something good in that direction. So he gave us a human nature. We're a unity of body and soul. We're not just a mind. I'm female. I'm female. You're male. A unity of body and soul. We know that our sex, the fact that we are male or female, has a purpose. That our sex is designed to help us be, uh, to co-create, to be procreators with God in that amazing task of creating new human beings. So our bodies are made one for another. It's a truth built into who we are. We can see that. We know that. What else do we know? Families are born of that love of husband and wife, male and female coming together. This is who we are. This is human nature. This has been unquestioned for centuries. Not just as a matter of faith, but intuitively. People know that there's a truth about who we are. Created male and female, made one for another. The family comes from that union. Sexual difference is the basis of the family. And we know also from a Christian standpoint, the family images the Trinity. And there's lots to unpack there, which I can't tonight. But, but that's who we are from a Christian anthropological standpoint. We also have the teachings of the church. The Catechism of the Catholic Church tells us some particular things about who we are. That our sexuality involves body and soul. It's not just a decision we make or alternatively we get to do whatever we want with our body and it doesn't matter. We also know from the Catechism that everyone has a sexual identity, male or female, and we're called to accept that as a gift from God. That that's, that's his gift to us. And that sexual difference, that complementarity is part of God's design. We also know in the Catechism how to look at the fact that sometimes sexual desire gets disordered. It can get disordered in all sorts of ways. But this is one of the tricky, uh, from a secular standpoint, tricky passages of the catechism. People hear homosexual acts are intrinsically disordered, which is what the catechism says. <coughs> the church is saying people who, quote, are gay are disordered and bad people. It's not what it says. It's talking about the fact that every action, every Every aspect of ourself is oriented towards a purpose. It has an end. There's an order to what things are created for. Sexuality is created to bring together husband and wife. It's created to bring forth new life. So when sexuality is misused, when it's directed towards another purpose that cannot fulfill that, it is not properly ordered. It is disordered. So that's what that means, we'll talk more about that. What else do we know about who we are? Most Christianity, Catholicism in particular, uh, faith and reason are, are two wings of, of you know, lifting up the truth. Science supports the truth about who we are. It tells us we are male and female. 
So across science, across biology, uh, organis organisms are classified as male or female according to their reproductive role. It's not a feeling, it's not just genital parts, it's the whole body organization towards a reproductive role. That's what sex is. So if you are infertile or you don't have particular parts, something goes wrong, doesn't mean you're not male or female, because your whole body is organized towards that particular reproductive role. So it's determined at conception. There's a phrase I'll talk about later, sex assigned at birth. Or sex is not, quote, assigned at birth as if it's an arbitrary um, label stuck on by the doctor. It's determined at conception, and it can never change. So that's what science tells us. Sex, male, female, it cannot change, it's immutable. There are only two sexes. You will hear, particularly young people will say, but wait a minute, what about intersex conditions? The actual name is the disorder of sexual development. Well, in the process of a human being developing in utero, things can go wrong, right? You can have someone born with a heart defect, someone born with something not right in their, in their brains. I remember when I was in grade school, going to school with kids who were born missing a limb because their mothers took thalidomide, which was a drug that was prescribed to help women avoid miscarriage. Those young people, those children, who had a missing limb did not represent some new kind of person who is designed to not have a, a, an arm or a leg. There was a disorder in development. It didn't make them any less in terms of dignity or worth. It didn't make them less of who God planned them to be. It's just a, a disorder. We're all broken in some way or another. So in the same way that you can have a disorder of a limb or a heart or a brain, you can have a disorder of sexual development. And so in a very small percentage of babies, something goes wrong in utero and the child is born and there's ambiguity. They may have to do genetic testing. The ambiguity or, or the, the disorder of development could be chromosomal, it could be hormonal, um, it could be genitals. So it can be all of these things doesn't change the fact each person is male or female, even if it takes a little bit to figure it out. What else do we know? We know that even though sex is immutable, personality is, is infinite. Personality is not determined by sex. And one of the things that we're seeing in today's world is sort of a reversal of uh, the stereotype situation, stereotype box. When I was growing up, people would tell parents of girls in particular, you know, don't, don't tell your girls they have to wear dresses, they have to like paint, they can only uh, do dance and can't play soccer or whatever. Don't stereotype them. Let them explore the wide open world. Well, now we're seeing something different. Now we're seeing the culture saying, look at all these stereotypical things. If your child is not conforming, to the stereotypical patterns, well then your child must actually be a different sex, which makes no sense. So we're reviving stereotypes and we're saying, this actually tells you who you are. The truth is this, if you map, for example, the personality traits of everyone here in the room, you'll see a pattern that the women will tend to have certain traits, certain interests, personality traits, 
The men will tend to have others. But there are going to be people all over those plot lines. And a, a woman whose personality traits are more, if you're looking at this graph, more on the blue end, more typical of the average male, is no less female than the, the woman who's smack dab in the middle of the pink area. Personality is an expression of who we are. There's an individuality that goes into that. It doesn't determine our sex. So our sex is immutable. Personality and how we live our life as a male and female is very much open to our own personal shaping of that according to the gifts that we've been given. So how do we get to where we are today? Gender, gender theology. Well, I want to give you a little bit of background on the word gender because I think even among good people there's some confusion. Because for many, many years, the word gender was used as a synonym for the word sex. We were talking about males and females would say, there's two genders. What gender are you? Are you male or are you female? Well, here's the thing. The word gender, as applied to human beings, was coined by Dr. John Money, who was a psychologist, called himself a sexologist, who had left behind his Christian roots and fully embraced the sexual revolution. He worked as a psychologist with two populations, with people who had <clears throat> excuse me, suffered from disorders of sexual development, and a very tiny sliver of the population who had felt so uncomfortable in their bodies that they pursued surgery to change their bodies. Almost exclusively, they were adult males, so the transsexual population. He was dealing with those two populations and came up with a theory that said, who you are, your identity, is not determined by your sex, but by your social living out of your feelings or your, your inner sense. And he called that gender. So your social identity could be separate from who you are as a sexed being, male or female. It was just a theory until he uh, was contacted by a family that had twin boys. And when the boys were being circumcised, one of the boys, uh, his penis was just destroyed. And his parents, understandably, were distraught. The, the mom had seen something about Dr. Money talking about uh, natal sex doesn't matter. It's how you live, your social identity. And she reached out and said, can you help? And he said, yes. So he was not a surgeon, but he worked with surgeons at Johns Hopkins. They operated on the child to uh, try to make his genital area appear more female. But the most important thing he did was to work with the family and say, you must treat this child as your daughter. Call him a girl's name, dress him in girl's clothes, treat him completely as a girl, and he will be a girl. After five years, Dr. Money declared this experiment a success. And he said to the world, see, nature doesn't matter. It's all about nurture. It's all about socially how you treat people. The truth was, this child was miserable. By the time he was a teenager, his parents told him the truth about his origin, that he was born male. And he reclaimed that identity from ended up having surgery. But the experience that he and his brother went through, they later accused Dr. Money of sexual abuse and things like that, the experience was so devastating 
uh, that this um, young man who later went by the name David ended up committing suicide. His brother died of a, a drug overdose. Dr. Money never recanted. He never said, it's not true that you can override the fact that you're created male or female. And in fact, he is responsible for that phrase, sex assigned at birth. Because he encouraged those who were working with um, infants who had disorders of sexual development, he encouraged those physicians to, to take the approach, do what you can do best. If you can most easily address this physical defect by turning this child into a girl, surgery to approximate female genitals was a lot easier, then that's what you should do regardless of chromosomes. So there's, there's a history that now uh, the quote, intersex community um, or advocacy groups are up in arms over what they say is um, you know, surgery without their consent. And they've got a point. It's reasonable to do surgery when you need to correct things so that a child can urinate or a child's body can function. But to arbitrarily change and decide who this child's going to be because you've got the surgical skills to make females or approximate females, but not males, so we're going to make them females. It was a tremendous injustice. But Dr. Money's uh, framing of gender lived on because it was very appealing to radical feminists in particular. So feminists were trying to push aside stereotypes, which was a legitimate concern. And, but there was a subset of radical Marxist feminists who repudiated the idea of marriage, family, church, <coughs> reproduction, and they saw the female body as an obstacle, almost as an instrument of oppression. So this idea that gender can be separate from sex was very appealing. So there was a phrase that was popular, biology is not destiny. It was a typical you know, uh, feminist phrase from that time. Over the course of decades, people got used to using the term gender to mean male or female, partly because as the sexual revolution exploded, people were sort of um, inundated with sexual images and there was sort of a reticence, we'll just use the word gender. There was also trying to be, um, have a sensitivity towards the legitimate claims of women who were saying, we need to be able to participate fully in society. Some of these stereotypes, these laws are unjust. And so gender equality was a watchword. But really what happened was that idea of gender went into academia and it grew and it festered and it was changed. It became uh, queer theory. It was layered on top of, of gender theory. And that's how we've gotten to where we are today. Where this idea of gender as being something you can define, it's your social identity, it depends, it's an expression of personal autonomy, has nothing to do with your sexed body. That's where we are now, but it's not something that was invented last year. So in 1996, there, were, um, there was a small group of male transsexuals, men, who had altered their bodies, were trying to live as women, because that was, that was really pretty much the typical um, classification of people who were expressing a, what we now call a transgender identity. It was mostly adult males or very young children. But in 1996, a group of them 
headed by Martin Rothblatt, who is a, a billionaire and is still around. Uh, and, and they put together something they call the International Bill of Gender Rights. And it expressed this idea that the human person has the right to self-define an, an identity. And, as a correlative, you have the right to modify your body in any way you want in order to express that identity. And further, society should throw off all its norms about appropriate sexual relationships, family structure, everything. In other words, the human person is uh, just a, a person with ultimate autonomy. We can do what we want with our bodies, my body, my choice. Okay, the same things that we're seeing in the transgender movement today were in that International Bill of Gender Rights in 1996. The difference is it's going mainstream. So in 2021, the uh, UN, there's a, for the past, I don't know, five years or so, there's been a UN independent expert on SOGI issues, sexual orientation and gender identity. Does reports every year. His latest report was, again, putting forward these ideas that who we are as persons is a matter of self-determination, self-definition, regardless of sex. And that what goes along with that is the right of every human being to modify their body as they see fit, to demand that others, governments, individuals, uh, the laws, treat them in the way they want to be treated. And that this is a matter of human rights. It has tremendous implications for religious liberty, for uh, the stability and, and human flourishing, but it, it's being uh, pushed through the culture. But my point here is this. This flawed idea of gender as something apart from our sexed bodies, our identities, is something that has been around and has been festering for a while. It's now just burst onto the scene, but unfortunately has plenty of powerful people and governments and, and advocacy groups behind it. This is how it's presented to our children. And these images in Fairfax County, they use gender unicorn. I saw a, a, a training video for teachers that use the gender unicorn. The gender red person is used in some schools, and in fact, under the Obama administration, they use the image of the gender red person to explain, as part of USAID's work with foreign partners, to explain how the US viewed the human person. So if you're going to work with us, you've got to understand what it means to be a human being. Let us tell you. So these images tell us something just by the images. But there's a theory that goes along with it. And it says this, unlike Christian anthropology, where we understand the human person as a unity of body and soul, created male or female, sex as immutable, unlike that, gender ideology says the human person is sort of an assemblage, a bundle, all these different dimensions, gender identity, gender expression, sexual orientation, romantic orientation, quote, sex assigned at birth, anatomical sex. In other words, you're fragmenting the person. Because according to gender ideology, none of these things needs to match up. They're all a matter of choice or discovery. And each one exists on a spectrum. So you don't really have male, female. You have maleness, femaleness. <coughs> People can be somewhere along the spectrum. So the most important things to understand here 
And the reason why I go into this is because I guarantee you, your children already know this. Because they are being fed this understanding of the person daily over Snapchat, over Instagram, over TikTok, in cartoons, Nickelodeon, Disney Channel, movies. Uh, it just is, it is permeating the culture. So you need to understand this. The most important concepts here, first, gender identity. Because that is being held up as determinative of who we are as a person. What's gender identity? Sounds kind of important. Gender identity. You know what it means? It means self-perception. Your feelings. How you perceive yourself. And that's literally how the Human Rights Campaign describes it in its coming out brochure. Your perception of self. Perception of self is inherently subjective. You cannot measure it, you cannot test for it, you cannot, uh, you cannot even tell or discern its presence from the outside. It has to be declared. Gender identity is completely subjective. So, but that is what is now held up as determinative of who we are. Every person gets to declare their gender identity. And that doesn't mean just male or female, or non-binary is kind of in the middle or somewhere along. It's anything you want. There are infinite numbers of, quote, gender identities. That's the most important. Uh, what else? Sexual attraction, romantic attraction. Again, a splitting. So that telling our kids they're not supposed to go together. It might be nice if they do, but they're not supposed to. And your body tells you nothing. It's just what do you, who do you have feelings for? Who excites you? It might change from one time to another. Uh, so sexual attraction, romantic attraction. Gender expression is what you do on the outside to express, to communicate to others what your gender identity is. So if I identi identify as non-binary, perhaps my gender expression means I'm going to have hair that's short on one side, long on one side. I'm going to wear clothes that are sort of androgynous. Uh, I pick a name that's in between. It's however the person wants to do it. Interesting how gender ideology treats sex. What do you do with sex? Sex is a reality. Well, gender ideology tries to minimize it, to say it's really of no significance. So it divides it into anatomical sex parts. Why? Because according to gender ideology and, and the growing business of uh, gender reassignment or transitions, you can change your parts. You can swap them out. You don't like them? Someone will remove them for you and, and give you new ones. And that's exactly what happens. I'll show you an image later. There's a doctor who, uh, there are many doctors, but one in particular who's on TikTok all the time, promoting her services of doing double mastectomies to teen girls. You don't like your parts? She can help you get rid of them. So anatomical sex is reduced to not being part of who we are, but just parts. Get rid of them. Or buy new ones. Um, sex assigned at birth. How do you grapple with the fact that when we're born on our birth certificates it says male or female? What do you do about that? Well, you reduce it to just being a label. And so books that are now written for children to explain gender ideology because we have to promote this starting at preschool and kindergarten will say something like this. When you were born, the doctors took a look at your body and made a guess as to who you are. 
but only you and your shirt. <coughs> so this idea of sex assigned at birth treats the fact of being male and female not as a whole body identity, but as a label. So our kids come away with this, with these ideas, that who they are is a matter of their self-determination. They get to decide. This image of a girl holding the, the sign, I'm a real boy. All I could think of was Pinocchio. Remember, I'm a boy, trying to, trying to convince himself. And a fairy godmother came along and turned him into a, a real boy. It doesn't happen in real life. In fact, I was reading a study today that was um, done by Dutch physicians and researchers who are very much um, all in on this gender affirmation and, and transitioning kids. <clears throat> but there was a startling admission in there where the doctor was explaining how uh, in, in all that they do in terms of hormonal therapy and, and surgeries, that it is unobtainable, unobtainable to change a person's sex. So they put that in a study. So what we have here is a clash of anthropologies. This is why, and the reason why I've spent so much time on this is because if you don't get this, the rest of it's just information that's not going to make sense. This is a clash of anthropologies. This is why the church deals with this and considers this to be such a serious issue. Because understanding who we are and all that flows from that is the foundation of every choice we make. And so when you have an ideology that proposes not just sort of a crazy idea, but a radically destructive vision of the person that destroys not just the individual, but human relationships and our understanding of the family and the culture that's built on that. That's why the church cares so much that people understand that while we want to treat the individual and walk with them and help them find healing for whatever that pain is inside, we cannot go along with this ideology that is destructive both of the person and the culture. This slide I'm happy to share through the school um, at a later date, but it's just a matching up of the tenets of gender ideology and Christian anthropology, completely incompatible. You, and the important thing here is that most people who buy into gender ideology don't do it because they sit there and they do this matching thing and they say, I want that, I'm rejecting Christianity. They don't realize, most good people don't realize that these are two utterly incompatible visions of a person. And you won't stay long sort of in that middle place, you're going to be in one place or another. So why does the church oppose gender ideology, just to sum up? It's not true, it's not the truth about who we are, it's opposed to scripture, it's opposed to human dignity. It destroys, literally, who we are and repudiates the gift of our body and treats the body as nothing more than a tool or a canvas for personal expression. It leads to tremendous harm, and I'll get into that. It also changes relationships, redefines who we are. If you have a female who all of a sudden says she's a boy and wants to be treated as a boy, she wants to be your son, your daughter, she wants to be the brother, not the sister. She wants to be uh, the grandson, not the granddaughter. She's changing other people's relationships to her as well. 
Gender ideology denies the anthropological basis of the family, and it makes it extremely difficult to catechize the young when they've bought into the principles or the premises of gender ideology. How do you then, on top of that, come and, and say, well, let's talk about the incarnation. Let's talk about virtue and the fact that what you do with your body matters. These things are not going to resonate if they've already bought into the idea that their body doesn't matter, that who they are is self-defined, and that the church's rules are just rules. Human nature makes no sense. So this matters. And then finally, you know, for those, especially young people, who say, but wait, I want to be compassionate and loving. We have to help our young people understand. It is never compassionate, it's never loving, to encourage someone down a path towards self-harm, or to put them in harm's way, to facilitate those who would exploit them for other reasons, and harm their bodies, their minds, and their souls. So what are some things that you should know as you think about having conversations with your kids? One, as I mentioned before, realize this is a global issue. It's not something just here. You can't escape it if you go to the Midwest you know, or Florida or something like that. It's everywhere. Um, there is a tremendous amount of money being spent to promote this. So these are stats from uh, the LGBT community. In 2018, $28.6 million was spent in the U.S. to promote trans ideology. So if you feel like you've been hit by a tsunami, you have been. It's been bought and paid for, and it's just coming through the culture. And that this is just one year. It's been going up every year. I haven't seen the 2019 figures yet. Another thing to be aware of is that we naturally bring our kids up to um, be deferential to authority, to respect authority. We have a problem because in this culture today, the experts, the secular experts, many of them are supporting this. And so our kids, our families, parents, when they're dealing with these things, are being told, trust the experts. But what we need to understand is that the experts who are in this space are by and large ideological advocates. They're not looking at this as sort of honest brokers and, and scientists. So all of these medical organizations, the AMA, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Endocrine Society, American Psychiatric Association. If people quote those to you, don't be impressed. Step back and realize that's advocacy talking. That's not the science. And in fact, because the takeover of these establishment groups has been so almost complete, it's been interesting to see the honest brokers starting to come forward. So there's an interesting coalition of um, physicians and psychologists and researchers who have created something called the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine. And they have done a tremendous amount of good just in the two years that they've been around critiquing studies, just giving people honest information. And they are not, I know a number of them, you know, a couple of the organizers are in fact Catholics, people of faith. The others are not. In fact, they're not with us on most issues, but they're honest. They know what the truth about the human being is. That sex is real and you can't change sex. When you encourage kids to go down a path that mutilates their body and, and toys with their emotions, that's really harmful and that's not a good thing. So just be aware that kids are being told, listen to the experts, it's like listen to the science, right? Um, 
we have to we have to understand who who's truly an expert who's looking at honest data and who has an agenda. Uh, give you a little bit of information about the American Academy of Pediatrics because they are in a full-on push to promote gender ideology, but not just promote gender ideology, to encourage doctors, telling doctors that they need to be doing sex and gender screenings of kids from the youngest ages. What that means is that they raise these topics with your child when you're not in the room, and they ask them questions which are just, one, so intrusive, but we are destabilizing in and of themselves to have an adult who you respect asking these kinds of questions. So in this presentation where these slides are taken from is a presentation by a, uh, a woman gender doc out in California who has presented for the past several years to the American Academy of Pediatrics. So she's talking to her fellow professionals and telling them how to do these gender screenings. And she says, do it anytime when they come in for a sore throat, when they come in for a physical, when they come in for you know, a broken ankle. There's every opportunity to raise these issues. But the key thing is to try to do it when the parents are out of the room. And, and, and they're upfront about that. And so here are some of the kinds of questions that they ask. They're trying to normalize the idea that anyone could be gay, bisexual, trans, queer, you name it. So everyone, gets asked these questions. You know, do you like boys, girls, both? Who do you have sex with? Boys, girls, both? What parts of the body? You know, and so this becomes a normalizing conversation. And I, it's interesting, I saw some data. The kids generally, especially girls, just kind of recoil from this. It doesn't matter, this is the agenda. This is what the professionals have decided uh, our kids need. So these are some kinds of questions. These particular ones came from a different presentation by a gender doc uh, associated with Fenway Health in Boston. And, but she too is a pediatrician. She's talking to her fellow professionals. Here's how you raise the gender issue. So you ask a child, you see on their chart that they uh, ticked off or their parents ticked off that their, their gender is you know, female, male, whatever. Now we've got options. But to raise that. So, I see you said you're a girl. How do you feel about that? You know, what, what does that mean to you? Do you ever, have you thought about exploring that? You know, it's just raising these questions. And I think back to when I was a, um, you know, early adolescent. And if someone had asked me uh, questions like this, it would immediately have made me think, what do they see in me that makes them think I'm not really a girl? What do they see in me? that makes them think they need to raise this. So even you could have the most grounded kid, when they're subjected to this kind of a thing, it's destabilizing, and it's confusing. So these are the kinds of questions, and then asking the parents, confusing the parents, instead of um, helping parents make sense of the world for their kids, they're uh, confusing parents about what's real. No. All right, so beware of what happens in the pediatrician's office. Another real strong effect on girls in particular is our pornified culture. You know, our girls, from the time any, anyone who's in this school has already picked up on the fact that the way the culture treats and sexualizes females is something that can be scary, it can be threatening, 
They may not know what to make of it, but they're not missing the fact that that's what the culture does, because it's all around them. And so one of the interesting things that we're seeing in some of the uh, testimonies of people who are called detransitioners, in other words, they transition, they went down the transgender path, a couple of years later, they're miserable, their bodies are a wreck, and they say, what did I do? And they start to try to unwind the process. One of the things that we've learned from their testimonies is that many of them were victims of sexual abuse, sexual molestation, or just were so turned off by the pornified culture, they said, not me. If that's what being a female is, I don't want it. I don't want it. And so that's a subliminal message that's in our culture. To be a female means you're going to be objectified. You're going to be used. Which means you don't really matter much. You're not, you're not really valued. What else do we need to know about context and culture? Uh, the mental health crisis among young people is real. It's particularly difficult for girls. And part of this is because girls tend to use social media differently. They tend to use every, every child's amount of screen time has gone through the roof you know, since COVID. Excuse me. But girls in particular relate to social media differently. And so we've seen a spike in not just the numbers of, of um, or the rate of depression and anxiety, but suicidality. In other words, just despair. Just feeling like, I can't do this. But particularly among girls. So the Surgeon General just came out with those numbers that uh, a 50% increase in girls' suicide attempts during the COVID era. I mean, that's, and that's not talking about gender, not talking about trans issues. This is just straight mental health. So we, we have a, a crisis, we have a problem on our hands, but it's magnified by social media, and then I'll get into the particulars of the trans aspect of this. But one of the problems with social media is this. Instead of people relating face to face, instead of building a relationship over time, gaining confidence that people see you and accept you and, and you make your mistakes and, and you engage people in real life to apologize, etc. Everything is, is sort of detached, so kids can have millions of followers or thousands of followers, and they become sucked in and dependent on those likes, on those follows, and they start measuring themselves and their worth and their value and how they look and what they posted by the likes and the reactions. And kids can be cruel, and that's why it's so devastating when you see the cyberbullying but it can be just as devastating. And I've talked with um, young people and, and parents as well. When a kid posts something he's particularly proud of and gets nothing, gets nothing, it's like, oh, I'm worth nothing. Because it's teaching our kids that who we are and the value of our lives is measured by others. It's measured by external things that we have no control over. Talk about feeling hopeless. You know, hopelessness is, and, and that feeling that you can't control things is one of the contributors to deep depression. So for a kid who grounds their sense of self in what others think of them and is constantly monitoring sort of the landscape out there to see how others perceive them and are reacting to them becomes a very insecure, <coughs> anxious child. So that's one of the reasons why this has been 
uh, social media has been so damaging. Some of you may have seen the series in the Wall Street Journal, the Facebook files, where they talked about how Facebook knew that Instagram was having this dangerous, uh, depressive effect on teen girls. They didn't care. They wanted more and more engagement. So it's meant to be addictive, and it is. So that this has a damage all its own. But we see in particular, regarding the trans issue, it has a particular effect. Some of you may be familiar with Abigail Schreier's book, Irreversible Damage. She looked into some of the early research that had come out and did a bunch of interviews with parents whose kids had identified as transgender. Um, just to step back for a second, in, when Dr. Money was spinning his theories about gender, people who were so uncomfortable with their bodies that they wanted a different identity tended to be either adult males or very young children, mostly males. And the numbers in the society as of 20 years ago were 0.002% of the population experienced that kind of identity confusion. What we see today is an explosion of adolescents, particularly adolescent girls. So the ratio has shifted from being male-oriented confusion to female-oriented, and we've seen this tremendous spike in numbers. Instead of saying, stepping back and saying, what's driving this? The psychological community pushed by trans activists has said, great, let's help them all transition. That's what we're here for, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But one of the things that Abigail's book did was it unpacked some of the research about what has contributed to this spike in adolescent female identification as trans or not binary. The way to think about it is, um, someone who is identifying as trans, we get focused on who they're identifying as, like what their new identity is. The crux of the problem is their rejection of who they are, their rejection of the reality of their sex body and its significance. The fact that they're talking about girls created female. Once you reject that, it doesn't matter whether you're going to identify as non-binary or trans or genderqueer or whatever. The problem is that, that rejection of who you are. So what we've seen here with these adolescent girls is that uh, if there's been an explosion, there's social contagion. So the pattern has tended to be the kids who come out as trans, at least at the time this was written, 2018, 2019, um, that kids who were coming out as trans were spending inordinate amounts of time online. Unfortunately, that's every kid now. Uh, they were kids who often were already struggling. They were suffering, they were in pain. They had body issues, maybe they were suffering with depression, anxiety, maybe they were, had uh, something traumatic in their backgrounds, sexual abuse, bullying. Bullying has a tremendously damaging effect. Um, unresolved loss, something as simple and tragic as losing a parent, losing a sibling. They can't control that. But if it's not resolved, it leaves a wound that makes them vulnerable. They're looking for a way to explain and relieve that pain. Somebody who's struggling with same-sex attraction doesn't know what to think about it. All of these things were factors that are, have been identified as being sort of risk factors, making a kid more, a girl, more vulnerable. And then what happens? She's in an environment where she's feeling pain, she's looking for a solution, and online, the online community says, we've got an answer for you. The reason for 
your discomfort with your body, your anxiety, your depression, your difficult uh, relationships, is because you're actually trans and you didn't know it. Didn't you always feel a little uncomfortable with your body? Didn't you always feel this? You know, and it takes them down a path with the promise that can never deliver. The promise that if you, quote, transition, if you embrace, reject your identity as female, and embrace this other identity, self-define who you are, modify your body, change your name, change your hair, your problems are going to be solved. You will find happiness. That's the promise. So as much as that Dutch doctor is willing to admit in his research paper that it's unobtainable to change your body and become the opposite sex or any, you know, any other person other than who you are, that's not how young people are. That's not what they're hearing. That's not what they're holding on to. Because they're in pain, they want a solution. And this, this solution is proffered up to them. That's the answer to their problems. So, what have we seen? A tremendous spike in the number of kids who are identifying as LGBTQ. Just the numbers of kids identifying as LGBTQ is off the charts. It used to be, since people have been measuring this consistently, you had about 1 to 3% of the population ticked up to about 2 to 4% of the population that was identifying as you know, gay, lesbian. Uh, it used to be a small percentage identifying as bisexual, and now it's exploded. But in a Gallup survey this year, 16% of young people, that's one in six, are identifying as part of the LGBTQ community. More troubling, a recent study in 2021, a major study of Pittsburgh area high school students, real diverse sampling, etc., found that almost 10% of high school kids were identifying as trans or gender diverse. Gender diverse is just another word for saying, well, I'm not going to call myself trans, but I'll call myself gender queer or non-binary or whatever. In other words, I repudiate who I am, and I'm, I'm picking some other label. One out of 10 kids. Can you look at these numbers? This is not a natural phenomenon. This is driven by the culture by advertising, by social media, by peer contagion, by our schools, by medicine. It's driven, it is not natural. So what we have to keep our eyes on is the fact that these numbers reflect kids who are in pain, kids who need a solution. But they're being given a false solution, which is tremendously, tremendously damaging. So the myths that our kids hear one, they get new language, all these definitions about who they are and how to understand themselves. You know, so I hear from parents how they feel intimidated. Oh, my kid knows all this language. They can tell me what all these things mean, and I, I don't even know. I have to Google it. And then you Google it, and you get the same ideologically um, distorted visions here. Just to point out one thing here, sexual orientation is defined as inherent or immutable. And that was, you know, for the past decade, decade, decade and a half, you know, the born this way myth has been well accepted throughout society. It was a tactic by the LGBT movement. And they, they have written about that because there was concern during the same-sex marriage debates. There was actually division. People were saying, we don't want to pin everything on the born that way because the research doesn't show that. 
And others came back and said, no, 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 we're only going to get sympathy, we're going to get supporters, only if people think we're born that way, we can't change it, you know, let's just go with it. It was a tactic. In 2019, there was a major study done uh, that just blew that out of the water. It said, there's no gauging. People have been searching and searching, there's no gauging. Doesn't mean that someone who's experiencing same-sex attraction is making a, quote, choice. Choices belong to behavior. We have control over our actions, but feelings are not something that we use. Feelings can come to us unbidden. And so one of the things this research showed was that about three quarters of the, the driving factors behind someone experiencing same-sex attraction going into same-sex behavior was environment and um, experience. In other words, who you're around, what's normalized, what are you drawn into? Kids who are abused early um, tend to have more struggles in these areas. What are your experiences? Kids have trouble making sense of experiences. So uh, uh, there's a lot of experimentation among high schoolers, adolescents, and unfortunately, if they only hear that born that way narrative, they think, oh my gosh, I did this, therefore I must do that. And it's just not true. I'll give you some data on that in a few minutes, but anyway, the point here is um, kids are getting these messages that are telling them their built-in assumptions into the language. One message they get, even from science, is bodies are just bodies. They're just bodies. You can do whatever you want with them. They have no inherent meaning. So heteronormativity, the idea that males are made for females, that's a colonial idea brought over by the, the Christians who were colonizing native peoples and forcing you know, a, an oppressive ideology on them instead of the fact that it's written into our bodies. Males and females are made one for another. Even the Lancet, dehumanizing women, talking about it, and they were doing a, an issue on menstruation, female menstruation. And so instead of talking about females, they talk about bodies with vaginas. I'm not a body with a vagina. I'm a female. Just like I'm not a birthing person. I didn't chest feed my children. You know, and these, this is the language that medicine is now promoting. It's dehumanizing. It cuts out the reality of being female and substitutes these other self-defined ideas, the body detached from meaning. Um, another myth or message that our kids, particularly girls, will hear is, um, you know, there are two boxes. There's the boy box and the girl box. And if you feel like you don't fit into the girl box, well, you must be trans. Or write your own ticket, you know, tell your own story, become who you want to be. And so what's happening here is it's a resurgence of stereotypes. In other words, they're creating the box. The box doesn't have to be there. The fact that you're male or female means something. But it's not this limiting box. That's, that's you know, the, the proponents of gender ideology who are doing that. So the girls feel constrained, or they feel like, well, I don't feel like I really fit in that box. Maybe I'm somewhere in between. I must be non-binary. We're not made for boxes. We're male or female. And that has a meaning. But who we are and our personalities and how we live and the choices we make is very much something that, that we chart for ourselves. So that's, it's a myth, but it's a very powerful one. Uh, what else are they hearing? Ah, love. Love is love. Love 
love who you want to love, be who you want to be. You know, it's all about tolerance, acceptance, affirmation. Think about those terms. Love is love. We're all for love. It's not true that love is love. What about the love of a 60-year-old man for a 10-year-old sexualized love for a 10-year-old girl? Are we going to say love is love? No, we're going to say that's disordered. What about the love of a person for their dog and they want to get sexual? Love is love. What about the love of one person for five others that they want to be married to? Is love love? Is it whatever we make it to be? So these slogans have an appeal, but they don't stand up even to basic questioning. Love is a profound truth. It's a self-giving, and we're made for love. But sexuality and sexual behavior is not the same as love. So that's, that's one. Then this idea, be who you want to be. Well, okay, but within certain constraints, within certain nature, you know, the, the reality of nature. It's interesting, you know, I, I mentioned to you, gender identity is self-perception. It's the only self-perception, completely subjective value, that we're sort of enshrining in laws, having all these rights and benefits. What if I self-perceive my, um, my sense of self as being a tall person, you know? And why shouldn't I demand that the rest of you all treat me as a tall person? Or as a young person, I'd like to be younger and thinner. <laughs> so, uh, you know, why don't I have rights under the law? to demand that that's, that's who I am, and you treat me that way. Because doesn't my perception determine reality? And don't I have the right to insist that all of you play a part in my narrative according to my terms? That's what's happening with gender identity. So this idea of be who you want to be is a very childish view. We're all constrained by the reality of our physical bodies, our sexed bodies. I may want to be the kind of person who can fly off buildings, but if I try, I'm not going to be here tomorrow. You know, so teach our children our bodies have nature. Who we are has very real constraints that we pay attention to in all different ways. Why do we throw it out the window when we're talking about this? Our bodies matter. Sexual difference matters. This idea of, you know, my gay self, defining ourselves in terms of our sexual desires. Why are we limiting who we are? Why are we, why are we saying the singular important thing about me is my feelings of sexual attraction at this moment for this person? It, it makes no sense, but that's what kids are being encouraged to do. And again, it goes along with that born that way myth. Um, I mentioned earlier, there is really good research that has been around now for a good decade, a little more, that sexual attraction is very fluid in adolescence. And to the point that um, in one study I was looking at, in 2019 study of, of low-income kids, diverse, so it, it's, it's not clear it's going to necessarily map to all of you, but 30% of, uh, of these kids expressed fluidity in their sexual attractions. 30% uh, of the girls, 10% of the boys. But there, there's um, longitudinal research that shows that as well, that in the course of adolescence, it's not uncommon for kids to either experience attraction, to engage in certain behaviors, 
or even to identify for a time in one way or another, and not stay there. Part of the problem here with the gender ideology and this labeling is that kids are encouraged to, quote, come out. They feel an attraction, and they're told, this is who you are. Define yourself by this, or they have some experience. Define yourself by this, and announce it to the world. And that locks a kid into a place where it's very risky and very difficult to unwind. So just understand research. Research doesn't talk about, quote, sexual orientation. It talks about attraction, behavior, identity, and belonging. They're all different dimensions. And so kids are being drawn towards the LGBT community for a lot of reasons. Some of them, it might be that they're experiencing same-sex attraction and they don't know how to deal with that. Some of them, it may be that they've had some sexual experience. In fact, there's, there's good data that the Fenway people were highlighting that kids who identify as LGB, um, almost a quarter of them report having engaged in sexual activity before the age of 13. Now, what I call that is abuse. You know, why do we just say, oh, that's kind of an interesting fact about them? That means a child who's been prematurely abused and exploited, introduced to sexual activity. But when a child has had that kind of experience in a culture like ours, it says, if you did that, and if you felt that, you must be that. Instead of saying, that's an experience, that's a feeling, but let's understand it. Let's us, as adults, help you get a perspective on this. Nobody should have engaged with you sexually at the age of 12, 13, 14, 15. That's exploitation. More to the point, the fact that you feel things or that you're ambivalent is something that we need to unpack and understand. But that doesn't define you. It doesn't change your nature. So, but no one's having these conversations because it's, it's so politically incorrect to suggest that it might be better to live your life in accord with the truth of your body instead of defining it as you would. So understand that research is there, that sexual orientation or attractions don't really solidify until mid-20s. But even there, for females, there tends to be continuing fluidity, uh, just depending on circumstances and things like that. So it's a conversation to have with your daughters to help them understand the importance of modesty, of proper boundaries, of exploring and talking to you, not their peers, about feelings that they don't understand. Sometimes what they perceive as sexual attraction is a desire to have a body like that. You know, they have a friend who looks really good and they, they don't feel good about their body. And they can become sort of focused and obsessive on that. And the culture tells them to sexualize their feelings. In fact, I was talking with a, some of you may have heard me say this, but I, I remember a conversation I had with a, a girl in, who was a middle schooler, and she was not a, not a Catholic, but she was relating to me how she was trying to figure out whether she was a lesbian. And she said she had talked to her youth minister and, and was asking questions, and the youth minister said to her, well, who do you wake up in the morning thinking about? And this girl said, my best friend, girl, I must be lesbian. No, you're supposed to love your friends. 
we're not supposed to sexualize these relationships. Doesn't mean you won't feel a fleeting um, interest or, or whatever. We need to understand that and help you deal with that. But again, these myths that kids are being taught to push them in a certain direction are really damaging because they're kids. They don't have perspective. They need help in understanding the feelings that they're going to have, or even bad experiences, as well as good experiences, and to make sense of that. Um, and then finally, kids will hear and will repeat to you the big lie, that if they're not affirmed and supported in going down this path, whether it's LGB or, or in particular the transgender path, that they're destined to commit suicide. And so it's on you, parents, if you don't support. And there have been doctors, I've written multiple reports of doctors, who will say such things to parents. You know, do you want a live son or a dead dog? And, and that's emotional manipulation run in the other direction. It's also a script. When you go online, kids can find all these, these lines that they um, are encouraged to use with their parents or, or their therapists in order to get what they want because they become convinced that the path to happiness runs through hormones and surgery. So they know the script. In fact, um, some of the research, I, I usually have a slide that I didn't include here, uh, research by Lisa Lippman talking to detransitioners, asking them the influences that made them go in that direction. And many of them talked about the pressure within the LGBT online communities. They were encouraging them, for example, to look up the DSM um, criteria to be diagnosed with gender dysphoria, to make sure you look that up before you talk to your parents or your doctors so that you know they're confident you're gender dysphoric and therefore you get the diagnosis and therefore you can start down this path. I mean, it's, it's insidious, it's evil, but it, it's real. And then finally, kids, girls especially, are being told not to pay attention to their instincts, to override that gut feeling that sense of being intruded upon if you have a male in the bathroom or a, um, a guy in the, in the locker room because he's identifying as female. And that's the institutional position. In fact, there was a court case where the judge literally said it was unreasonable for girls to feel like their privacy was being invaded by having males in the locker room. That it shouldn't matter. Shouldn't matter. You know, so, so girls in particular are being taught, don't pay attention to what you're feeling, what you're thinking, your concerns, your worries about safety. Even though, I'll, I'll tell you, the safety concerns are mounting. That is not, that was something that was dismissed early on as, oh, no one's going to get hurt if there are trans, if there are males in the bathroom, guys who are identifying as female. Oh yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's plenty of evidence that's a problem. So what do girls need? Proactive parenting. They need, first of all, to be loved. And that's, that's a point of soul searching. How am I doing? And there's, um, there's good data out there that shows that most parents, when you ask them, do my kids think I love them? Most parents will say yes. When you ask their very kids whether they feel loved, there's a big disparity. Big disparity. So what we perceive our kids as understanding may not, in fact, be true. So we need to be verbal about it, we need to express it, we need to be, uh, ask them about it. We need to do some soul searching, ask your spouse. I, I remember my husband 
and giving me a reality check when one of our kids was going through a hard time and, and I was really worried. But he said to me later, he said, you look so angry. I said, I'm not angry. I'm scared to death. She you know, <laughs> do X, Y, and Z. And, but he made me realize it didn't matter if what I really felt was worry and concern and, and you know, all those things. What I was projecting, what my daughter was reading on my face was anger, which put up a barrier. And also ask your spouse, how do you really come off when you're, when you're concerned about these things? Our kids need facts. As you can see from, from what I've gone through, there is so much out there that is just not true. Gender ideology is an ideology built on lies. Lies about who we are, lies about how they find happiness, lies about how to understand their feelings, their relationships. Our kids need facts. They need facts, girls in particular, the truth about their body. Most girls go through a time in puberty where it's uncomfortable. They don't particularly like their bodies or how it's changing. It feels really weird. They don't know what to think. <clears throat> Talk to them about that. That is normal. That is not a sign you are trans. In fact, there's a, um, uh, there's a funny, uh, funny anecdote of a uh, dad who his son had come out and said, oh, I'm, I'm transgender, I'm female. And the dad did, he was very smart. He started asking questions. That's what you should do. You listen, ask questions, um, ask them to explain, unpack what they mean, you know, project love, but give them facts. So he asked his son, so, you know, I, I want to understand what, what videos and, and what websites did you go to? And one of the things his son said was, well, I took this quiz online, you know, are you trans? And so the dad took the quiz, and he came back to his son, and he said, you know, I have some doubts about that quiz. It said I'm even more trans than you are. And of course, it was a wake-up call for his son, you know, who happily did eventually desist. But kids need facts. So the truth about our body, the immutability of sex, it is a lie, it is a mirage that they're chasing when they think they can become someone other a female. They never can. Even if they take hormones and they sprout whiskers, and even if they get a tube of flesh implanted as a, a fake penis, they can never produce sperm, they can never have an erection, they can never have an ejaculation, they can never function as a male. They will always be dealing with the reality of their female body. And if they choose to poison it by the testosterone, or destroy its natural function, they are multiplying the pain that they will have down the road. So that's, that's just a fact that our kids need to understand. Help them understand their feelings. Ambivalence, not black and white, that there's all sorts of things that we can feel that are conflicting. Help them make sense of that so that they're not just going to the internet. Help them establish healthy friendships. And that means being vigilant. One of the most um, important influences on kids is first parents, but then peers. So if there is a peer in your child's life who is having a negative effect, you need to be the parent and set the boundaries. That, that person is not going to have sleepovers, you're going to minimize the time, and you don't have to, you don't, there are many different ways to do that. You can simply fill your child's dance card. So they're, they're busy with other things. Or you can be direct if you need to. But you need to set limits and boundaries. 
because a friendship that is taking them in the wrong direction rarely stops by itself before there's harm. So you have to exercise those, that authority to be willing to put boundaries there. Um, and then recognize the larger situations and influences and help your kids understand them. Help them see the phenomenon of social contagion. And, and you'd be surprised what you hear. One way to open those conversations um, with kids is often to throw up some fact that you've, you've seen you know, in the news or you've heard them talking about and say, what do your friends think about that? Because oftentimes it's easier for kids to sort of move into third person and, and tell you what their friends are thinking about. And that gives you a window or an opportunity to ask questions about how they feel about it without making them all of a sudden feel like they're on the spot. You need to gather intelligence to understand what they see, what they hear, what, and, and the impact it's having on them. You can't assume. You have to, you have to try to open it up and, and understand. Um, all right, so a few things. I won't go into language. I'll leave this uh, with the school. They can share this with you. It's important that we use accurate language. You know, if we're talking about sexual difference in males and females, we are talking about sex. We're not talking about gender. If we use the term gender, kids are going to import that cultural meaning of self-defined, I am who I am. So we need, we need to use accurate language. Um, when you're talking with your kids, ask questions. So too often, um, and as a parent, I, I know how easy this is to do. A kid tells you something you don't want to hear that takes you by surprise. It's easy to react. You need to step back and you need to think, okay, I have to understand what they mean by that. I have, because what you think they mean by it and what they do mean may not be the same thing. I need to know the facts that have led into this, the context. So asking those questions from a, a place that, that begins with, look, I love you, whatever you're going through, you know, we'll work together, we're right here with you, but I need to understand more because I care about you and, and that's my job. That's what I answer to God for, that I have done my very best to take care of you and make sure that, that you're being guided in the right direction. So I need to understand this or I need to do some research. I need to hear what you're, you know, what led you to this point instead of just going right to the don't do this, don't do that that kind of thing. We have to understand first. Help girls especially understand it's a wonderful thing to be a female. It is wonderful. And having the capacity to have children is just an amazing, amazing gift. But as it is, our culture devalues females and sort of considers uh, the ability to have children as, a, as an afterthought. It's a throwaway. It's a hobby, a lifestyle. If you choose that, you can go that way. It tells us something about who we are. You know, we, as women, we're made with room for another, <clears throat> built in into who we are. That tells us something about how we are to live. It teaches us something about our emotions. So have, helping girls in particular, and, and Oakcrest, you know, you've got your daughters in, in a really good place for that. It affirms the, the wonderful dignity and beauty of being a young woman, but also helps them see that God has a plan for that, which is also missing from that conversation. But two aspects to emphasize here. Sex is immutable. Personality, temperament is unique. You know, there's a wide horizon to be who you want to be. 
but you have to operate within the parameters of reality. You can appeal to kids' sense of fairness when you're talking about the trans issue. Some of you may have been following the situation of the uh, University of Pennsylvania swimmer, Mia Thomas, who is a male who until uh, a year and a half ago was swimming on the male team, the men's swim team, and is now breaking all the records in the Ivy League uh, swimming championships. In fact, I think she's swimming. She, see, I did it. He is swimming this weekend. But you look at these images, you know, Males in sports, it's inherently unfair. They have bigger hearts, bigger lung capacity, <clears throat> etc. Just because you put a male on testosterone suppression and you get it down to a certain level doesn't erase all of that anatomical advantage. But more to the point, they found even when you get those numbers lowered, they still retain a strength advantage, a speed advantage. You know, it's, it's just not fair. So at the very least, uh, kids who are compassionate, they want to be inclusive, they need to realize, okay, inclusive means inclusive on the basis of reality. They're males. We're not saying they can't play sports. They can play sports with the males or let's do a co-ed league or, or whatever. But they don't belong in a female-only league. Uh, help kids realize what love is about. Love does not equal sexual intimacy. <clears throat> and, and the fact that our society is so quick to imagine that if someone is, the church is teaching that uh, sexuality belongs, the sexual expression belongs in marriage between male and female, the, the world is so quick to say, oh, you're condemning people to a life without love. And I think of, of the people I know who are unmarried and living chaste lives, the people I know who are widowed or who are in circumstances where their marriages do not include sexuality, someone I know whose, whose husband was paralyzed, you know, are we saying their lives are lives without love? Of course we're not. Why is it only this category of LGBTQ? We say, well, if they can't express love in a sexual fashion with a same-sex partner, they're condemned to a life without love. It's not true. The highest form of love is friendship. Love is self-giving. We're all called to that. But we're not all called to the sexual expression of love, which belongs in marriage between a husband and wife and is oriented towards children. So help them understand that in a big way. This is just a chart that actually should have been up further. But just looking at this, you see the red line? This shows you, just reinforcing the point, this is not a natural phenomenon, all this LGBT identification. You can see every other generation, nobody's had this. This is the result of social contagion. Oops. All right. So, a couple of things to know. This is a book I strongly recommend. It's by a woman named Maria Kepler. Uh, she's worked with a lot of families who have kids who've gotten involved with transgender issues. And one of the most helpful things about this book is that it includes sort of sample dialogues, how to kind of open up certain difficult conversations or how to respond to things that a child might say. One of the things she does, too, in this book is draw out a point that I've heard from numerous families whose kids have gotten involved with this that it is very much like a cult. When a kid, especially a kid who's lonely or struggled socially, gets drawn into um, particularly <clears throat> trans-oriented communities, they get love-bombed. And, and they get told that we're your family. Anyone who doesn't support you, they're not. They're, they're just bigots. And, and so there's a divisiveness there. But it also functions like a cult in that they're, they're literally told, get your information from here. Don't believe what you're hearing there. Don't, you know, it's, it narrows their world, it limits their world, 
And even within those communities, there's sort of an orthodoxy. You can't, there, there's pressure to keep transitioning. You know, if you're gonna be really trans, you gotta keep going. And so it's, it's a very unhealthy thing, but it's one of the interesting things in, in her book. But I, I encourage you to look at that. TikTok is toxic. You know, one of the best things you can do is get your kids off social media. But failing that, get them off TikTok. TikTok sends this stuff to your kids. It doesn't matter if they've never explored or tried to view a video that's got this, they will get it delivered to them, and it is just toxic. That friendly face in the middle is a 33-year-old um, male who's an influencer who puts up these very seductive, I think they're satanic kinds of videos, um, just oriented towards adolescents who are trans-identified or questioning and just telling them, I love you, your family, you can trust us, and you know, all these messages that to a hurting kid who's alone in his room or her room is, is really seductive. Um, and you can see the numbers there that TikTok is just a wash in trans propaganda, and it's really harmful. Um, I didn't spend time on the, the medical stuff, but I, I do want to give you a couple of points on that. Uh, one, once a kid starts down the trans path, where they start puberty blockers, it, it's a one-way path. The percentage of kids who go from puberty blockers to cross-sex hormones, depending on the studies, between 97 and 100% kids. It's very hard, once you start down that road, it's very hard to get off it before you've, you've endured some harm. When kids then go from puberty blockers to cross-sex hormones, cross-sex hormones bring out um, artificially induced secondary sex characteristics, so like whiskers, um, it stops girls' periods, things like that. Oops, wrong way. So it can it can change an appearance. It doesn't change your function. It's just destroying your function. But what happens is, for girls in particular, they start getting the whiskers and they start feeling like they're more masculine, and yet they've got a problem. They've still got breasts. And breasts give them away as being female, even if they wear a binder, which is a compression garment, which is very unhealthy in and of itself. And so what happens is they feel pressure to go the next step to get a mastectomy. And so they, um, there have been, uh, there are a number of observational studies that have reported on mastectomies being done on young girls as young as 13. Okay, it's, and it's just, uh, so damaging, so damaging. Here's the doctor I mentioned before, the one who's on TikTok advertising her services, you know, just promising happiness to these young girls who don't like their breasts. So you can get rid of them. It is just, it is so destructive. Uh, something important to know is that the US is very out of step. Up until about two years ago, you know, the developed world, the US, led by the Scandinavians, we're all in on this gender affirmation, which started by, with the Dutch um, and came to the US in 2007. But there was this groundswell of support until starting about two years ago as physicians and parents started breaking through. But in the countries that have socialized medicine where they can track the data, we have seen an amazing change where they are stepping back from the prescription of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones because they look at the data and they say, this isn't making kids happier. This isn't making them you know, feel better. They're still suicidal. They're still depressed. And oh my gosh, what have we done? 
what have we done to these kids? So they're stepping back and saying, they're not repudiating the whole enterprise, but they're saying, we're going to prioritize psychotherapy. Help kids unpack and find what, what the source of that pain is. The U.S. is not there. In fact, the U.S., because our medicine is so profit-driven, Big Pharma is invested in this, now the fertility uh, world is invested in this. Why? Because kids get sterilized. If they're on puberty blockers and go to cross-sex hormones, they are infertile for life. So one of the things, and they're finally admitting that, so what have they done? They're responding with a business opportunity and saying, okay, we're going to offer fertility preservation to these kids at, at 12, 13, and 14 before they go from their puberty blockers to their cross-sex hormones. So medicine is making money. They're exploiting kids, exploiting kids' pain, doing tremendous damage, but it's out of step with the U.S. This just shows you the rise in, in surgeries. Um, just a couple more slides. This is just an image sort of where this leads. I feel very sorry for this young man. Uh, when he was a little boy at age four, he told his mom he was a girl. And instead of saying, no, honey, you're a boy, and it's really good to be a boy, and no, you can't change your body to be a girl, but we're going to help you be a wonderful boy. They said, okay, you're a girl. And he became a celebrity trans kid and has now gone through three genital surgeries, uh, has struggled with depression, eating disorders, you know, continual mental health problems, and is just spiraling downhill in spite of making tons of money from this, having all the support in the world, you cannot blame, and, you know, there's no stigma in his life. He is celebrated 24-7, and yet the problem is whatever the disturbance was has not been healed. It's just been layered on and layered on and layered on, and, and I fear for him as to what happens next. So, as parents, where is this leaking? I'm It's pretty overwhelming in one sense. But I think we really have to hold on to the truth. You know, the Lord says, be not afraid. And the truth is the truth. And um, I, I work with some very diverse coalitions. You know, people who are unbelievers, people who, who are, uh, identify as gay or lesbian but reject the trans thing, people who are radical feminists, people who are all over the map but who can see that it's a tremendous threat to our culture when we deny reality. And the reality is male and female are different. And you cannot change sex. So kids who are embracing this trans phenomenon are embraced, they're chasing a mirage. And the adults who are facilitating that, for whatever their reasons, maybe making money or fear or whatever, are causing an epic disaster. You know, they, Lawyers will get involved at some point, you know, to bring the medical malpractice suits, but that's not going to save the kids who are suffering now. So, what do you do as parents? First, pray for your kids. You love your kids like nobody else, except for God. And He loves your kids more than you do. So pray for your kids nonstop. Pray for good friends for them. Pray for the wisdom, the wisdom to know when something's going on, to know how to deal with it to know when to bring others in, to reach out for help. Pray for them. Talk to them. One of the key things is to strengthen your relationship with your child, a child who's struggling with any of these issues. They need to know they're loved. 
They need to know this is a journey that you're with them on, but you're not going to walk with them off a cliff. You're going to help them find healing and find wholeness, no matter how long that takes. So open up those conversations. Pray for your kids. You know, seek advice and help from others. We have um, a website, the Personal Identity Project. We list a lot of different resources there. And they're particularly oriented towards Catholics. And I hope you'll find some useful things there. Um, this is for our newsletter. If anyone wants to sign up, they can do that. Um, but anyway, I think we have a few minutes for questions before. Yeah, it's kind of late anyway, but I don't mind staying. But you know, I want to give a chance to perhaps answer a few questions. right now and um, we will get to as many questions as possible in the next 15 minutes um, and if there's time we'll also um, be happy to take some questions from the audience so I'll go ahead and um, I'm just going to give you the cards okay. <laughs> I'm not going to take the cards for you you're in charge <laughs> this requires glasses all right. Um, is it too late? Should we head for the hills? <laughs> Can the culture at large be brought back to its senses? Um, it's not too late. It's never too late. You know? And I, I think there are two things there. One, realize you have your own particular sphere of influence. You know, look around you. God is calling you to speak the truth and to help those in your own sphere. Right now, whatever that means, whether it's relatives, neighbors, teaching your kids the truth, you have a mission in this because it's that important. To protect your kids, you need, to, you need others. You can't head for the hills by yourself. You need others. And that's where choosing a school is tremendously important. Family friendships is tremendously important. Um, strengthening your relationships with your kids. But also, be wise recognize where the culture is and understand the influences it's having on your kids and don't be afraid to be the parent and to set those boundaries you would do it if it were drugs right if you knew that that your kid had a, a friend who's introducing them to drugs you would not uh, facilitate that relationship in the same way someone who is introducing a really damaging life-destroying ideology. You need to set boundaries. And kids oftentimes will feel compassion for, say, that, that outcast kid who's now identifying as trans. Teach them to be kind to that person. But realize, help them realize, they're not in a position to solve that child's problems. They need to be kind. But this, that kind of a, a difficulty requires adults it's not their responsibility. And more to the point, it's, it's not healthy for them to be immersed in that circle. So teaching kids their own limitations and what it means to be a friend 
oftentimes in more limited circumstances. You can pray for that person, you can be kind to that person, you can defend that person, they can do nice little things, but you can't be drawn into their daily life. You can't be part of that circle because it's like someone going out to rescue, I like guarded figures, you're going out to rescue someone who's drowning. If you don't know what you're doing, you are gonna be sucked down and you'll have two people drowning. So it, that's the kind of thing that it is. All right, um, what do we do when, not if, pro-transgender and pro-LGBTQ families start promoting these ideologies here at Oak Crest? Do we compromise the school to love the person? Well, first of all, there's, there's not going to be any compromise in terms of where Oak Crest stands in Catholicism. And I'm not going to speak for the school, but I know the school well enough to say that. You know, this, this is a Catholic school. So you've got an ally. You don't have someone who's opposed to you, whereas families I know who have kids in, in secular private schools or in public schools, it's a very different situation because oftentimes they're going to keep knowledge about your own child from you. That's part of Fairfax, or actually the Virginia Department of Education model policy on um, dealing with transgender students. They will not tell you if your own child is expressing a transgender identity unless your child says, yeah, go ahead, call my mom. You know, so there's, there's a division, whereas the school here, any Catholic school, looks at parents as partners in that educational mission. Now, when you have a school that's open to many different people, people come in in all different places, right? It's just like the church. The church, excuse me, is not a collection of people who are sinless, who all think the right thing, who understand the doctrine right, or, or who are even um, have worked through their own wounds to the point where they can um, deal with things in the light of truth. Sometimes we're carrying big burdens. So I imagine that in a place like Oak Crest, you're gonna have people coming from all different experiences and backgrounds. And, and so the, the question there is, one, share the truth. Be loving and kind to everyone. Open conversations with people if you feel like there's a difference. Um, and, and if you have concerns about how, if, if someone's being vocal against church teaching and you're aware of that and you think the school is it, bring it to the school's attention. Because that's where the line gets crossed. Oak Crest has a mission. Just like you as families have a mission. And you need people to be on board with the mission or at least not contradicting it. It's not like people are, are none of us is where we should be spiritually, right? We're all growing and, and we all have our own baggage and things. But if you're going to be part of a school community, you, don't, you can't be um, in opposition to what the school stands for. So if there's something that concerns you, I'd encourage you to, you know, to bring it to the school, but don't write people off. Don't write people off. I was talking with someone uh, just two days ago who used to be as far left on everything as you can imagine. And we started working together on the trans issue. And she has just really come to embrace the truth about the person in a way I couldn't have imagined a year ago. You know, so give people the benefit of the doubt, but don't be afraid to speak the truth. All right. Um, if one out of 10 teens identifies LGBTQ, actually it's one out of 10 teens identifies trans, one out of six teens identifies as LGBTQ, what's the percent at Oak Crest and how is Oak Crest helping these girls? 
I have no idea what the percentage of kids who are struggling with this might be. And that's an important thing. So whereas that stat, ask kids to define themselves. One of the things that we as Catholics need to do and as parents is to help kids um, take a more, uh, more accurate view of themselves. Don't proclaim an identity because you have a feeling today that might change tomorrow. Don't proclaim an identity because you've gone through this experience or you're struggling with this. You know, some things need to remain private. So in terms of, of you know, who's, who's at Oakcrest, I have no idea. And, and more to the point, if you have a child who's struggling with these things, it's far better to engage that within the family, not to encourage any sort of an external thing you know, in a school community. Not because it's their shame to having a struggle, we all have struggles, but because kids need freedom to make different choices down the road. They need freedom to discover the truth, to, to zig and then zag and come closer to where they should be. You lose your freedom when you slap a label on you and you overexpose your feelings and your, your struggles. And that's, that's one of the real problems with social media, is kids are encouraged to put everything out there. And it teaches them a false sense of relationships. That, oh, I put everything on social media, so therefore when I see my friends in person, I tell them everything. No, you don't. No, you don't, or you shouldn't. We need to have some reticence. Talk to people who can help you deal with certain things. Don't just sort of air everything. Why? Because you're going to get bad advice. You're, that's going to be the thing people remember about you six months down the road when you've sort of forgotten that existed. That's sort of what happens oftentimes. Uh, so encourage some, some reticence. And again, in terms of school things, I can't speak to that except that I'd encourage you to bring things to you know, school administrators and, and teachers when you have a concern because nobody can see everything all at once um, and your perspective is important. All right, what happens when our kids go to college? We can protect our kids from social media while in our home um, and teach them the truth what happens when they go to college. Um, well, depends on where they go, but some places are uh, less conducive to human flourishing on this order than, than others. A lot depends on your kid. You know, when you're looking at where should I send my kid, I think one thing I, I say to Catholic parents all the time is step back from the prestige game. This is not about getting your kid into the best school. This is about looking at your kid and saying, what are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? What's their vulnerability? And where are they going to find the people they need to find to help them be who God wants them to be? Because the purpose in life is not to get the Harvard Law degree you know, or, the, or the whatever position on Wall Street. The purpose in life is to get to heaven. You know, and you need friends, starting a friendship with God. And so we have to be really um, humble, I think, as parents. You know, I've got smart kids, but in looking at where our kids were going to go to school, there was lots of schools that they wanted to go to that I said, nope, you're not going there. Because depending on the personality, some kids can be that kid who can, you know, stay the true course no matter what. Other kids are not going to make it. And 
that's what should matter most to us. You know, where are our kids going to be 10 years down the road? Do they have their faith? Are they uh, human beings who are flourishing because they know the truth about who they are? And they've avoided making the worst mistakes, or if they've made mistakes, they know how to seek repentance and seek healing and, and land in a better place? That's what we want for our kids. They have it all, it's nothing. If you, know, you end up... Um, with a kid having lost their sense of self and, and their, in, in terms of how God sees them. So, uh, so be real practical about that. But if, if your kid's going to a place, um, every, every secular college that I know of is awash in this. And one of the problems is at the health centers, particularly for girls, you can walk in, tell them you have gender dysphoria or you're transgender, and you can walk out with a prescription for testosterone. And around most colleges, there are Planned Parenthood uh, facilities, and Planned Parenthood is now into all of this in a big way. Why? Because the number of abortions has fallen. But once you get a kid onto cross-sex hormones, you've got a customer for, you know, until they stop, quote, being trans, it's a, it's a great little moneymaker. And, and they are leaning into it. So they've become one of the biggest providers of cross-sex hormones. And all they have to do is walk in and tell someone they're trans and they're going to get what they want. So know your child and know, you know what they need in order to stay the course. If you have a kid who's already struggling, it's going to take a lot of wisdom and prudence to figure out where the right place is going to be. But in <coughs> many of these places, the first thing they do at orientation is they're celebrating LGBT culture and encouraging people to connect. And kids who are lonely, kids who um, or on the autism spectrum, I didn't mention that earlier, but the kids who are on the autism spectrum have a much higher percentage of identifying as trans. Uh, kids who have attachment difficulties, relationship issues. I mean, they're, they're vulnerable. They're vulnerable. So you need to be wise in terms of, one, helping them realize what they might encounter. You know, when your kids were little, didn't you tell kid, your, your kids um, not to talk with strangers? And if someone pulls up and says, come see my puppy, you're not going to go see the you know, strange man who's got the puppy. You know, you told kids ordinary things, common sense, to keep them safe. We need to do that about these sorts of things. To let them know that this is a really seductive, seductive ideology. And they're going to get pulled into it if they're not swimming fast in the other direction. So um, speak to them. All right, um, two more questions. Uh, do I see a trend of transgender persons and persons actively recruiting and attempting to convert others? Is a spread peer-to-peer? -peer? Yes, on both counts. And, and they don't hide it. That's, they think they're, again, going back to one of the first things I said, many people who are involved in this think they are doing something good. So if you have embraced this transgender um, lifestyle or the LGBT community, and you think, oh my gosh, I was so repressed, now I'm flourishing. Then you look around you and you say, you know, that kid's unhappy, I bet they're repressed too. I bet they need to hear the gospel. And, and so, yeah, there's recruitment, and, and they're, not, uh, they're not shy about it either. So, all right, how do girls and their families resist these ideologies without being labeled bigots? Well, you might be labeled a bigot. Unfortunately, that's the way the culture is. I think one of the things, the two things we can do. One, be unfailingly kind.
to people you encounter, whether it's the person at Starbucks who, who looks like they you know, haven't figured out who they are, or you know, your, your kid's friend who you meet who's obviously having troubles, or, or just, just be unfailingly kind. You know, treat people with dignity, number one. And then, you know, number two, um, <coughs> how to resist it. You know, you've got to keep your eye on the truth. It's like uh, someone once said, talking about the spiritual life, you know, if, if someone tells you, don't think of a pink elephant, you're going to think of a pink elephant. Right? <laughs> so in the same way, it's, it's one thing to educate your kids about the danger that's out there. But that's inadequate. You have to do that. And, and I will tell you one reason why we're having this talk is because there's been a tendency in the church and among good people to say nothing, to assume their kids know the truth and they're going to be okay. And if they're not hearing the truth and the warnings of, of what's really out there from you, they're hearing a very different narrative from the culture. But believe me, they are hearing something about this. So we have to speak the truth. So speak the truth, but you have to um, not just warn about the bad, you've got to give kids a vision for who they are. That's why I said it is wonderful to be a woman. One of the things that happens to kids when they get drawn into these communities is their interests narrow. All of a sudden, everything is about being an LGBTQ activist. And they stop the piano, they stop the soccer, they stop the art. They narrow their lives. So one practical thing that families have found is as you're trying to you know, put boundaries on the social media is to change things up. Put your kids in the car and go out and take a hike. No phones, no nothing. Get them back in touch with nature. You know, give them some opportunity to learn something. In this social media culture, everything's up here and on the screen. Kids need to learn and gain competency in doing real things because it leads to a deeper confidence. So, you know, think about how you can change things up. What, what can you teach your kids? What can you expose them to? Where can they travel? Can they do something different? And, and that can be helpful. So give them something positive. Don't just warn about the bad, but do, do. Have an honest conversation about the bad, not just once, but, but over and over.